welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, this is James, and welcome to episode 31 of the Madden America podcast. This week, my guest is Professor Michael Fontaine. Michael is Professor of Classics and Associate Vice Provost of Undergraduate Education at Cornell University in New York. He regularly consults on Latin for museums, institutions, dealers and collectors, having exposed forgery in Renaissance and Dutch Golden Age paintings. In 2016, he received the Thomas S. Sars Award for outstanding contributions to the cause of civil liberties. And before we get started, I just wanted to acknowledge the help and support provided by Glenn and Bert at the Cornell University Broadcast Studios, as they made the recording of this interview possible. Professor Fontaine, thank you so much for talking with me today for the Madden America podcast. To begin, I wondered if you could tell us a little about yourself and what led you to become a professor of classical languages and literature. Well, that's a great question. Um, People ask me that a lot, and I sometimes say, it's not clear that we choose our interests. I think it makes more sense to say our interests choose us. So I grew up in Louisiana in a suburb, uh, and I went off to an undergraduate college that was um, very good for liberal arts. I had a professor in a required course my very first semester, and the topic was Greek tragedy. I didn't know a single thing about that, but uh, I fell in love with the course. The professor was an amazing individual. She went on to become my mentor. I wound up majoring in classics, and uh, I went straight off from college into graduate school, and... Uh, did a graduate degree in classical languages and literature. Uh, and it's just been a tremendous experience. Thank you. And having read your work on Madden America, it's clear that we've adopted the language of ancient times in all branches of medicine. But I was fascinated to read that actually the question of whether mental disorders were biological in origin was being debated thousands of years ago. And so it's somewhat shocking to find that actually we've not made as much progress as modern psychiatry would have us believe. So what can ancient history teach us, if anything, about how we conceive of mental disorders? Absolutely. I I think most people are not aware of why it is we even study the ancient world. So when we talk about the ancient world, we're talking about Greece 2,500 years ago and the Roman Empire, which is most of the surrounding the Mediterranean Sea, about 2,000 years ago. And at that point in time, people who lived in those societies had better material conditions than they did in uh, most parts of the world until about 150 years ago. Uh, They were more scientifically advanced. They were more advanced in education, uh, in many, many social institutions. uh, And as I said, just the comforts of life, they had the same sorts of things that many people didn't have until the time of the American Civil War, about 150 years ago. And it's at that very same time period in Greece that people began scientific medicine and speculation about where the world comes from, and they began discarding religious explanations of the world. So that's why um, it's helpful to go back and see what sort of the first scientists thought about all these same phenomena. And it's doubly important if you happen to be of European um, let's say, extraction, precisely because today so many people are looking for genetic explanations of mental distress or mental disorders. And so if you are descended from European stock and there's no real evidence that people had these same problems or that they thought about them the same way uh, in the past, you wonder how did the genes change from then till now? And so you say that we haven't necessarily made some progress. I would agree and say that from uh, a certain point of view, we may have taken 
a number of steps backwards and that uh, 2,000 years ago, people had a more uh, precise idea of what's going on than many people do today. Well, that's fascinating to learn because, again, in my naivety, I thought that psychiatry was a very modern branch of medicine and that understanding the brain was a very recent thing. But it was fascinating to read about the debate on this, even around the time of the birth of the medical model. And Mike, how were people treated in ancient times who displayed behaviours that were considered different or abnormal? Were they treated medically? Well, I'm going to answer that question, but I want to take a step back and ask you and our audience uh, a particular question because we're talking about the medical model and we're talking about psychiatry. Where do you, so here's a question. Where do you think that the world's first use of the phrase psychiatric ward is found? That's a very good question. I'd say, given my limited knowledge on this, the pre-asylum days of perhaps the early 1900s or even the late 1800s. So that's an excellent answer, but it's totally wrong. <laughs> if you, uh, you're not going to believe this, but the answer is that the first use of the phrase that I've ever seen anywhere is in a library 2,400 years ago. Uh, specifically, it's the most famous library in all of history in the ancient world, the Library of Alexandria in northern Egypt. Uh, and we know about this because there was a Greek tourist, a guy named Hecateus. He went there in the 4th century B.C., that is to say about 2,300 or 2,400 years ago, give or take. And he saw the inscription uh, and he wrote about it. And uh, Egypt at that time was under Greek control. So the inscription is written in Greek. And if you look at it, it says, Psychis Yatreion. Now, psychiatry is a compound word. And anybody can look at that, uh, those two words and realize that those two components, psyches and yatreon, are the two parts that make it up. So in Greek, psyches yatreon means a healing place of the soul. And so that is how the people who built that library wanted you to think about it, that a library, a collection of books, was a place where you could go to heal your soul. By the way, you can still see that same phrase in libraries today. Uh, I'm thinking, for example, of the lobby of the University of Rhode Island in Kingston, Rhode Island, which is uh, right down the street from where I used to live. If you walk into the lobby and you look up, you will see that very same inscription, a healing place for the soul, a suitcase or suitcase yatreon. And so that raises kind of a fascinating question that leads into what you were asking a moment ago. In the ancient context, it's obvious that many people regarded healing the soul, or to use the Greek word psychiatry, as this metaphor for personal development or a metaphor just for happiness. So the real question to ask, I think, is when did people start to regard psychiatry, soul healing, uh, not as a metaphor and begin regarding it as this literal thing that you could somehow tinker with the body, tinker with it medically or through drugs or through surgery or something like that. And in that way, you could fix or improve the soul. And that would get you back, uh, certainly in modern times, to the asylums that you were referring to in the, uh, in the 19th century. Uh, but to get back to the question you were asking, how were people treated in ancient times who were, for lack of a better word, who acted uh, in a deviant fashion? You're going to be, you may not be surprised to learn that it's almost exactly the same thing. I wrote a paper about this, and there's an, uh, sort of a video version up on madinamerica.com. I could maybe put a link to the paper if people are interested in more. Uh, there's, and we know this from a play, uh, a stage comedy that was written about 2,200 years ago. And in this particular comedy, a guy uh, is kind of in a jam. He had, uh, people have mistaken him for his long-lost twin brother, but he's not sure what's going on. So he says, well, everybody's calling me crazy, so I'm going to pretend to be crazy, and I'm going to scare everybody away. So 
he begins suddenly pretending to hear the voices of the god Apollo telling him to get violent and to hurt his wife and to hurt his father-in-law and that sort of thing. And immediately this guy who thinks he's his father-in-law runs off to get a doctor and the doctor comes in and examines this so-called patient or this guy who is pretending to be crazy. And the guy who's pretending to be crazy knows he's not really crazy, but the doctor concludes that the guy himself just lacks insight to, into his condition. And so he says, well, I'm going to prescribe a course of drugs to give you psychotropic drugs to bring your madness back under control. And so, of course, this guy is pretending to be crazy, realizes he's really in a jam now, so he's going to try and run away. But the doctor goes off to get four big, strong men to come and confine this guy at the doctor's clinic for a couple of weeks so that they could give him the drugs forcibly. Uh, and in the event of the play, it's a comedy that doesn't happen because another person comes in to rescue this guy and the rest of the play goes off in a different direction. But some of that might sound kind of familiar to some of our audience. It does. It sounds like the Rosenhan experiment. That's exactly what I compared it to. That is exactly what I thought it sounded like as well. The idea that people who hear voices or people who say they hear voices, that the best way we're going to treat them is with drugs, even if they say, I don't need drugs, I don't need medicine. That wouldn't be medicine for me because I'm not actually sick. So a common response is to say, well, this individual lacks insight into their behavior, so we're going to give them the medicine or the drugs for their own good. Now, that's an arguable position you might want to take, and a lot of people do take that, and there might be something to be said for that. But it's not clear that giving drugs to someone in that situation would be the same thing as giving them medicine, for example, if they had a cough. Absolutely. And Mike, I was interested to know if the coercive element of psychiatry was something that also had its roots in ancient history or whether it was a comparatively modern practice. That's a harder thing to, uh, to examine. There's really not a lot of evidence. I can tell you that there were no asylums in the ancient world. Uh, there were no prisons in the ancient world, which is sort of an interesting thing to discover. That is to say there were no long-term residential places where you could put someone away for many, many years. If someone were demented, which is not the same thing as mental illness, uh, they would typically be confined at home uh, and cared for by the family or someone presumably that the, uh, the family would hire the Greeks and the Romans routinely used slaves as servants, and so uh, that would be one solution. The other solution was exile from the community to uh, literally send somebody away and they could figure out their own fate that way. But the idea that we would confine people in an institution for many, many years, there's just no real evidence for that. It is interesting that long periods in prison were not used in the ancient world. So how did they deal with people whose behavior was considered way outside of social norms? Well, that's, I mean, that's a little tough. If the person were threatening violence uh, and saying that they hear God's voice commanding them to kill somebody, the play that I mentioned by Plautus is pretty good evidence that doctors at least could be summoned for that kind of thing. So that's one possibility. Another would be uh, shamanistic cures, religious or superstitious cures where you sacrifice a pig or you have some kind of ritual healing. You could go and sleep in a temple covered in sheepskins and allegedly have some kind of dream and that would tell you how to help a person. Uh, I think many of those cures are still with all, they're still with us today, but they're not on the radar screen for many of us. People still do resort to that kind of thing. But I think there is probably a greater tolerance of eccentricity in the ancient world than we see today. And there is also a much greater awareness of philosophy. Uh, that's a word that today, when many of us hear philosophy, I think we, we think only of an academic department. Uh, you know, something you might study at a university or at a high school 
or you might think of logic from middle age style philosophy. But in the ancient world, philosophy, in particular Greek philosophy, was much closer to what we think of as sort of religious denominations of Christianity. There were a number of schools where you could go and you could study uh, different approaches to everything from where the universe comes from or whether the gods exist or if they do exist, do they care about us? Do they do anything to change our lives? And then there were prescribed lessons on how to live a good life that would tamp down on some of this behavior. Now, one thing that in the ancient world, of course, they had no idea about. They didn't have microscopes. They didn't have brain scans. Uh, so if someone did act uh, truly eccentric, they wouldn't have had any idea whether the person had a tumor in the brain or not. Uh, even today, though, that's not necessarily clear. I think for many of us, people are often diagnosed as schizophrenic. And as far as I understand it, I, I should be clear that I'm not a doctor. Uh, but the diagnosis of schizophrenia is not based on a brain scan. It's based on the behavior itself. So if we're diagnosing a lot of people as having a brain disease and we're not looking at the brains, it's not clear to me how you can tell the real deal from someone who's acting eccentric because they are having personal problems in their lives. Well, you reminded me, Mike, that from reading your 2014 article on Mad in America entitled On Religious and Psychiatric Atheism, The Success of Epicurus, The Failure of Thomas Sars, I was aware that there was perhaps a supernatural understanding of people's mental state, and then along came Hippocrates and the medical model. But in that paper, I was fascinated to read about the alternative Epicurean model of mental distress, and again, if it's okay, I wondered if you could help me understand how that school of thought differed to the medical model. I'm glad to hear you say that. It's a really fascinating subject. So let me start with the medical model itself. Uh, that begins with Hippocrates, who's, uh, it's hard to say anything about this man as an individual, but he clearly had a medical school that started in the 5th century BCE, so about 2,500 years ago. And he was the first to regard all this stuff as a medical matter, the idea that the behaviors themselves were due to broken brains or something like that. And his model was the idea that your four humors, your body liquids, were out of balance. Uh, now, if you ask people today if they believe in the humoral theory of the body, most people, I think, would laugh and they'd say, that's quaint. That sounds like something from the 17th century. And we got rid of that when we discovered microscopes and we could see the cells, which the ancients didn't know about. But, but what I find absolutely fascinating is that many people today regard depression as the result of a chemical imbalance. Now, from my point of view, that's exactly the same thing as the humoral imbalance. So a theory that was decisively discarded a couple hundred years ago has snuck back in the back door. And people, uh, many people say, well, you know, I'm feeling unhappy because my serotonin levels are low or something like that. Uh, and maybe, you know, whereas uh, the serotonin levels may well be low, but it's not clear which way the cause and effect arrow goes in that case. So that was the medical uh, approach. It's not clear how widespread that was, but it certainly began with Hippocrates, the same name that gives us the Hippocratic Oath. In that article that you mentioned, uh, and that's on Mad in America, if people would like to see it, I talk about Epicurus in particular connection with Thomas Sauce. Now, Epicurus was a philosopher, and he founded a school that was named for himself, Epicurean philosophy. Again, it's analogous to, say, the way Lutherans are named for uh, Martin Luther, Calvinists are named for John Calvin. He established a school that was something like a university in the outskirts of the city of Athens. 
And his entire philosophy was inspired by recent scientific ideas of his time. The most important was a guy named Democritus that uh, our audience may have learned about in school when you study physics or chemistry. And Democritus's idea was that the whole world is made up out of atoms and that's it. So that you reach, you know, if you were to keep cutting something in half smaller and smaller and smaller, the only thing in the world are these indestructible little particles that are eternal and empty space for those particles to move around in. And if you, uh, as the atoms move around, they form into big molecules and the molecules turn into big masses and the masses turn into things like coffee tables and human beings and trees and all the rest. And his idea uh, was scientific in nature, but Epicurus took that and he said, if this is true, then there's no place in this scheme for the gods to really either exist or if they do exist to have any influence on our lives. It's all just random collisions of atoms moving around. If this sounds familiar, uh, that's because this is basically the same ideas that we teach in physics departments today. Uh, so Epicurus in a way founded the secular humanist lifestyle, the idea that uh, it's all up to you. And his uh, Epicurus is fascinating because what he tried to do was help people to be happy. And he says, look, if the gods exist, they're not going to help you be any happier. So we have to make ourselves happy in the here and now. And the best way to do that is with a code of ethics that we can subscribe to voluntarily to take care of each other if we want, to form communities if we want, to uh, exercise our bodies. And that way we can change the chemicals that make up our brains and the, everything else inside of our body. And that may cause the changes that we want to be happier. What's interesting uh, as well is that his was just one of a couple of schools that had similar ideas. At the same time that Epicurus was writing, there was a rival school called the Stoic School. Uh, and they were named for a famous colonnade that is in the center of Athens. And the Stoics had a similar idea that the whole world was made up out of just matter and empty space, atoms and void. Uh, so that's the same starting point as the Epicureans. But the Stoics also thought that there were these ideas of fate and that everything was out of your control. And so uh, you just had to sort of learn how to master your own emotions because nobody could do that for you. And if you think about the word stoic today, that, that idea survives even in the English language. If someone tells you to be stoic about it, the idea is to kind of tough it out. Uh, don't look to anybody else to help you out. Uh, so both of these rival philosophies were extremely influential in the ancient world. Uh, in the Roman Empire, which I write a fair amount about uh, or read a fair amount about as well, among the upper middle and the upper classes, most people probably subscribe to one or two of these philosophies in the, the golden age of ancient Rome. What I thought was interesting in comparing this to Thomas Sauce is that as uh, probably everyone listening knows, Sauce was a libertarian. He too thought that uh, problems in your life were going to be due more to interactions you have with other people and not the chemical substrate of your body, even though it's obvious that chemicals themselves can change our bodies. And when the chemicals do change, they can change the way we feel. I mean, if you ever had a cold beer after a long day at the office, you know that material stuff can monkey with the way you're thinking or feeling. But uh, his great insight was to say that uh, the rest of this stuff is myth-making. This idea that we are unhappy because our bodies are broken, that's certainly credible and it's certainly possible, but there's no real proof for it, except in cases where you scan somebody's brain and you say, ah, yeah, there's lesions on the brain. 
Uh, if we're not doing that to people, we can't tell the real thing from personal problems in life. So this is all a long way of saying, I suppose, that in the ancient world, depression uh, didn't exist. They just would have called it unhappiness. And the solutions for being unhappy were all going to be based in community uh, solutions or philosophical solutions. You would practice and meditate how to be a better person or how to make changes in your life uh, for spiritual growth. And a lot of those ideas today exist, I think, only in religious communities. So they're a little tied up with supernatural ideas. Well, it's really interesting because I've seen more acknowledgement in recent years that socially based responses to mental distress are where we should be targeting our efforts rather than chemical interventions or psychosurgery. And it's fascinating to learn that it's taken us 2000 or so years to come back to thinking that our interactions and our social environment probably have more impact on our mental health than anything else. So that's a, that's a really interesting point. And this is where studying the ancient world can really crystallize things for you. So what I'm talking about, these, these three competing models of the ancient world, the sort of scientific medical model and the philosophical model, and then the superstitious model, there are all three are in competition in the ancient world. But what happens is starting really in the 3rd century AD, the 3rd century CE, if you prefer, so about 1,700 years ago, uh, Rome, the Roman Empire, where all these people are living with these competing ideas, it enters a, sta uh, a very steady state of decline, and life starts to get worse for everybody. Uh, and it opens up vo uh, a big void that's quickly filled with religious ideas. So in the year 381 uh, AD, 380 AD rather, it became mandatory to become a Christian in the Roman Empire. If you weren't Jewish, you had to become a Christian and you had to believe Christian ideas. And anyone who did not was subject to legal penalties and declared a heretic or a madman. And so that idea that Europe would become Christian lasted for a very long time. Uh, Christianity didn't really go into decline until the Enlightenment in the um, beginning in the late 17th century and then to the 1700s. And in all that time period, these ideas more or less disappeared. The scientific idea disappeared. The philosophical idea sort of disappeared. And a lot of these aberrant behaviors became attributed to supernatural causes again, to the intervention of Satan, the intervention of witches, the intervention of Jews. Uh, and the remedies for these various things became, again, supernatural. You could use holy water, you could use prayer, you could use various things. But the, so what the Romans had regarded as problems in your life became regarded as uh, heresies or sins. And then as the power of the church began to decline and people began stepping away from institutional Christianity, we quickly entered the scientific revolution. And people discovered telescopes and microscopes, and they began looking at a really microscopic level at everything and discovering things they'd never seen before. And we begin with the scientific method, which is wonderful. It's transformed everything about our lives and almost all of it for the good. But what happened is with the decline of Christianity went the decline of philosophy and the rise of science. And so now I think a lot of people are using scientific approaches to look at problems that are not necessarily scientific in origin. It's sort of the way if you look at a pornographic image... Most people would say, well, I know what that is, but if you get your eyes really close up to it and you put the thing a, you know, a couple centimeters away from your eyes, all you're going to see are different colored pigments. And so how are you going to describe what you're looking at? Is it just a bunch of pigments or is it an actual image? Well, you know, the image emerges when you step back and you look at the picture as a whole. And it's sort of similar. If somebody's having a problem in their life and you use a microscope 
or a brain scan to see what's going on, you're going to see sort of under the hood. But is that really looking in the right direction? Are you using the right tool to look at the problem? And so I think you're right. A lot of people outside the medical community are uh, clamoring for more community-based solutions, more personal development solutions, uh, more care of every kind. Absolutely. And Mike, you mentioned there Thomas Sars, and you talk in that paper about some similarities between the Epicurean model and how Thomas Sars viewed mental or emotional distress. And I know that you and he communicated probably quite regularly, and I wondered if you'd ever had the chance to discuss that with him. Uh, I'm really glad you asked that, uh, because it brings back one of the fondest memories of my life. And when I began looking into all these things about uh, eight years ago, I discovered Sass uh, quite indirectly. I'd been studying the Rosenhan experiment, and then I found my way to Sass's writings. And it turned out that he lived about 45 minutes away. Uh, I just couldn't believe my good luck. And so I began emailing with him back and forth. We were uh, communicating about uh, the paper I was working on at the time, and he was helping me with a couple ideas. And we studied the Breivik trial in uh, Norway, which is, um, if you recall, when this guy went and shot up a bunch of kids, um, massacred all kinds of uh, young kids of a political bent, and was promptly um, diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. And so we spoke about these things. And uh, I said, finally, can I come on up and, and take you out to lunch uh, anywhere you want to go, it's on me. So he said, yes, sure. So I, I went and met him at his home, and we drove to probably the shabbiest diner in the whole area. Uh, lunch cost maybe seven bucks for the both of us. Uh, so he was not a fancy person at all. We spent maybe two hours at lunch, and it was the most life-changing conversation I've ever had. Sass had spent a lifetime thinking about these issues, advocating different ideas, different explanations. Uh, he had a ready answer for everything I had. And it was just absolutely fascinating. And at the end, I told him, I said, you know, I think it's like having lunch with Galileo. And that brought a big smile to his face. Uh, but it's important to emphasize that Sass didn't have the slightest interest in converting anybody. Uh, he's the opposite of a cult figure. He said, well, these are my ideas. You could take them or leave them. He wasn't uh, at all interested in money. He definitely did not want to start any kind of community uh, of which he would be uh, at the forefront. He simply wanted the freedom to express his own ideas. And if you thought they were good, you could take them. And if you thought they were bad, you could leave them. So really very, very interesting. I'm trying to think of some of the gems that he came up with. And the one that sticks most in my mind is a little phrase he used. Uh, I mentioned the Breivik trial. I said, wow, he's being diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic uh, by people that haven't examined his body or anything like that. And he said, yes, here it is again. He says, attributes regarded as phenomena. And I've thought a lot about that phrase, attributes regarded as phenomena. We attribute to somebody an idea, but instead of regarding it as something that we impose on the other person, we think that we have, like Sherlock Holmes, discovered something in the other person. Uh, so it's a phrase that I've repeated over and over and over, and it really helps me think about uh, human relations when I talk to somebody? What am I projecting onto the other person? And what is really coming from that other person? Um, but absolutely a fascinating talk. That was in November of 2011, right around Thanksgiving. Not long after that, uh, I think within a year, as you probably know, Sass committed suicide. He uh, had fallen at home and I believe broken his back the doctors, as I understand it, had said, well, we will go back and operate. He was 92 years old, and he said, don't be absurd, and he went and took his own life. Now, many people regarded that as shocking, uh, and some people were upset when I, 
I mentioned that in a public forum, but I said, this man wrote many, many books on the right to choose your death. He says, we have a right to life, but people don't want to have a right to death. Uh, and of course, it's a very, very difficult topic, uh, very emotional. Um, but he was very clear about what he wanted to do. He did not want to become dependent on other people. And so I only learned about that shortly after his death. Uh, there was an obituary in the New York Times that someone sent me. But he was a fascinating character. There's tons of footage uh, from his heyday that uh, our audience can go and find on YouTube and various other sites. Uh, he was very, very funny as well. Very funny. He never said this, but I am pretty certain that he saw himself as sort of a new Voltaire figure. Voltaire was the great satirist of the Enlightenment in France. And he thought that making fun of something, uh, poking a little fun at it, would get a lot more people to come around to your way of thinking than arguing and shouting at them or even trying to prove it to them. Uh, so an absolutely fascinating man. Thank you. And in talking about Thomas Sars, again, in that article, you talk about his legacy. And I wondered if you'd reflected on that in the intervening years. A very good question, again, uh, because it, it brings so many thoughts to mind. Yes, I definitely have. Uh, immediately after I found out about uh, Sars' death, this was in 2012, the first thing that occurred to me was to try and... Uh, go to the big meeting, the American Psychiatric Association, and present an academic paper on his legacy. And that's the paper that I wound up publishing on the Mad in America site as uh, the comparison of Sass and Epicurus. And I thought, let's just see what people have to say. So I, I wrote the abstract, I, I confess, a little ambiguous on purpose. It's called The Failure of Thomas Sass. And what I meant by that uh, was not what I knew the abstract readers would think. I meant, how has the world failed Thomas Sass? Um, and so I went to this meeting, which I thought would be not so different from walking into the Vatican and declaring that God does not exist. You don't expect them to welcome you with open arms. But I presented this idea about SAS. And as soon as I was done speaking, uh, a number of psychiatrists, practicing psychiatrists came up to me and they said, you know, he was totally right. Uh, one of them said, I feel like a pill pusher. Uh, but I don't know what to do. This is what people want from me. They come and they ask for these things. Now, I, would, I don't know the names of these people, and I certainly wouldn't uh, mention them now without getting their permission. But the ideas are there, and they are there even among a number of psychiatrists. So things are certainly changing. Uh, it's not clear that they are catching up, though, with the number of people that are becoming increasingly invested in uh, – the opposite of, of Sasa's ideas. I just recently saw some statistics that said one in four American women of roughly middle age is taking an antidepressant pill in the United States. One in every four. That's a big number, a very big number. So I think about that issue. Uh, and what we did, uh, I say we, a couple of years ago was that some of Sasa's very good friends and students and colleagues edited a volume in his honor. It's called Thomas S. Sass, The Man and His Ideas. And it was edited by Jeffrey Shaler, Henry Lothane, and Richard Vots, all three of whom knew Sass very well. And they asked uh, about a dozen of us who were influenced by his thinking to write essays examining his legacy through different lenses. Uh, the book just came out last year, toward the end of last year. And I wrote an essay on schizophrenia in the ancient world. And I said, what would happen if we take Sasa's ideas about the most frightening of all, schizophrenia, and we look at some of the ancient literature through his lens? What does it tell us? And uh, so the essay, again, I posted it online. I'd be happy to share a link to where people can get it if they'd be interested in seeing it. 
but it really sets uh, some aspects of the ancient world in a whole new light. It, I think Saz helps us see that the ancient thinkers regarded some of these ideas the same way that he did. And the more recent idea of biological psychiatry and molecular uh, variations and genetic explanations, that this stuff is all fairly recent. But I think I wrote somewhere toward the end of the essay, uh, it's going to be a long time before Sasse's ideas are going to be accepted. Uh, and it'll probably be long after my death. I would say at least 100 years, maybe more, before these ideas catch on. We probably are not halfway yet. The other essays in the volume, uh, some are by uh, Mad in America authors, and some are by, they're by doctors, uh, psychologists of various kinds, trying to examine human behavior in all kinds of different fashions. And the goal is always to see if we can examine these behaviors, these strange, eccentric, sometimes frightening behaviors, and explain them without the need to invoke this idea that they have causes rather than reasons. A lot of people aren't careful with that distinction. So, uh, is human behavior caused or does it have reasons? Sass always said human behavior has reasons. We do things for a reason. Uh, we, aren't, we don't do things because of causes, at least not behavior as it's traditionally understood. You know, if I whack your knee with a hammer, well, your foot is going to shoot out because that's a reflex. Or you might have an epileptic seizure if you have epilepsy, but that's not really behavior, goal-directed behavior the way everything else is. So that fine distinction, I think, will help us really understand all kinds of different aspects of, of life today. Absolutely. Well, again, from your writing, it becomes clear that if we took the time to learn, not just from Thomas Sars and his contemporaries, but also way back in ancient history, then we probably would be taking a much less medically and chemically oriented approach to what for people are probably quite understandable reactions to trauma and stress. Yeah. Although, you know, Sass was, uh, he was quite clear that he was libertarian about this kind of thing. He thought it was totally fine to take any drug you want, totally fine to kill yourself, totally fine to do all kinds of things. Most of us, I think, shrink back from and say, is there really no wiggle room for community support? You know, if someone's having a bad day, should we not intervene in the short term? So some of Sasse's, um his greatest students and, and colleagues, I think, took a different view. One of them just died um, just a couple months ago. Do you know the name Ron Leifer? I've heard the name. So Ron was one of Sass's colleagues uh, many years ago. He was, uh, he was fired from SUNY Upstate uh, Medical School for supporting Sass when um, Sass's chairman tried to get him fired, though he had tenure. So Sass had tenure and got to keep his job. Lifer did not and was fired and his career never really recovered, but he wound up going into private practice. And so he and I got to know each other. And he said, I just don't agree. He said, there needs to be at least a short-term solution. If someone is acting absolutely wildly, uh, I don't see anything wrong with giving them medicine in the short term, even if they don't want to have it. That's very different from giving somebody a maintenance drug like Ritalin, for example, and having the person stay on that kind of drug for 25 or 30 years. Another person who lives here in town is Peter Bregan, and uh, another um, another associate of uh, SAS from back in medical school. And he too, I think, has different ways of trying to examine, you know, how are we going to solve these problems? And it's not necessarily a libertarian one. So it'll be interesting to see if people ratchet on to Sasse's ideas more from the libertarian perspective or more from the demedicalizing perspective. Uh, my short read is that uh, 
most medical psychiatry is, continues to ignore SAS. They just, uh, the journals don't really say anything about them at all, uh, which is quite different from the interest from people not within that community. Uh, there are still big numbers of people that go to SAS.com every day, and they are reading all the different ideas on there. So that will be an interesting debate uh, and a bit of a battle to follow. Thank you so much, Mike. I just wondered if there was anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners. Oh, sure. There might be a couple ideas that listeners would be interested in just because they're a surprise. You know, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. I'm not sure that's exactly correct, but it's pretty close. And I want to give you an example. Uh, One of the big trends for the last couple of years has been the emergence of so many people uh, of transgender identity, you know, people who uh, say or feel uncomfortable in the gender they were assigned at birth, and so they are switching uh, their outward presentation. So that sounds like a recent phenomenon. If you were to read around on the internet, they say things along the lines of the very first known case of transgender identity emerged about 40 or 50 years ago. Well, that's not really true either. And I've got a text I could post it on Mad in America if people were interested. We have a poem from 2,100 years ago. Uh, by the poet Catullus. Catullus was a Latin poet. He died fairly young. But he has this short poem about a young man named Attis, A-T-T-I-S. And Attis decides uh, that he wants to run off and join a new community and worship. He wants to convert religion. And as he goes to convert religions and he joins this new group of people worshiping the goddess Sibylle, he wants to relieve himself of what he calls the burden of his groin. And so he grabs a rock, a sharp rock, and he slices off his penis and testicles. And the instant that he does, the narrator of the poem begins using feminine pronouns and feminine adjectives to describe Attis. So, you know, with all these political struggles, they're all over the news every day. You know, when a person self-identifies with the opposite gender, what pronouns should we use? It's amazing to see that Catullus did the exact same thing 2,100 years ago. Just absolutely amazing to see this. Uh, What's also interesting, the the same narrator later on in the poem, it's a very short poem, about 100 lines. It would take you four or five minutes to read it. Uh, The narrator calls Attis a bastard woman which seems to mean someone who regards himself as a woman but isn't really a woman. It's sort of an unusual phrase. Otherwise, the the thing that I think uh, readers might benefit from, especially if they have any kind of book club or a friend they like to read a book with, is uh, how much Greek tragedy can help you understand the world. So uh, I'm thinking in particular of the Greek uh, tragedian Euripides. There were three great... Greek tragedians. He was the youngest. He died right around the year, oh, what is it, 399? No, a little before that, 401 BC, I think. Uh, so 2,500 years ago. And he wrote a number of plays in which uh, a character is placed under extreme stress and does terrible, terrible things. And the, narr- and the playwright's job is to try and understand what would motivate a person to behave that way. A great example is this play, Medea. M-E-D-E-A. There are free translations on the internet. And in this play, Medea is a, an immigrant woman who has moved to a new community and married a, a, a local guy. Her husband uh, runs off with another woman, starts having an affair. And so Medea is uh, so rattled, so upset, so distraught that at the end of the play, she murders their two kids to get back at her husband. And so when that kind of thing happens today and we read about it in the news all the time, you will see immediately people attribute that kind of behavior to mental illness. But the tragedians 
trying to find a rational explanation. What would it take to make someone feel that way? What are the forces at work in that person's life to put them under such extreme stress that they regard that as a uh, reasonable solution to the problem? And so uh, these plays are extremely interesting to read. Uh, and if you have a look at some of these things, they might help understand an alternate way of regarding violent behavior, eccentric behavior, all sorts of things. So that's my plea for Greek drama for the audience. Mike, thank you so much. We will certainly post links to this on Mad in America because I think people having heard you will want to know more. And I was staggered to find how much actually in the ancient world they were discussing issues that we regard as contemporary and there's so much we can learn from looking at the past. To dive into ancient history without a guide, I personally find quite challenging, but you provided that guide for me, and I really hope that we can get to a place where we can find that healing place for the soul for everyone, whatever that might mean to them. I love it. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure doing this. And yeah, and since you saw it talk about healing of the soul, don't forget that it was inscribed on a library. Walking into a library and finding a good book might be a great way for people to start thinking about some of these issues. Well, I just want to thank Professor Fontaine for taking the time to chat and to say that there are links to his writings on the post that accompanies this interview on Madden America. So thank you for listening, and until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.